Okay, thank you for listening to this episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the 1968 Peter Bogdanovich feature film, Targets, with my guest, Joseph Schneider. Joseph Schneider is a writer who is the author of a series of crime novels revolving around an atypical LAPD detective named Tully Jarsdell and his equally interesting partner, Morales. I want to make sure and give Morales some love because he is a few cuts well above the norm for crime novel partner characters himself. Jarsdell navigates murders in what I like to call the real Los Angeles, not the Los Angeles of Hollywood film, glitz, and glamour, per se. This is a Los Angeles that we'll be exploring in this episode. Joseph's first two books in the Tully Jarsdell series are One Day You'll Burn and What Waits for You. They've been glowingly blurbed by Booklist, Kirkus Reviews, Library Journal, as well as heavyweights like Law & Order creator Dick Wolf, who called One Day You'll Burn a brilliant first novel and said that, Joseph Schneider's contemporary writing evokes some of Hollywood's most classic crime stories, from Chinatown to L.A. Confidential. Like many crime writers, Joseph has one of those kind of head-scratching bios that includes things like competitive ballroom dancing, acting, and being a magician with actual objects like playing cards, not just words. Joseph and I met through Instagram when I praised his debut novel as one of the most original and gripping crime novels I had read in a long, long time. He replied and followed. We formed a mutual appreciation society on the gram, but this is the first time we are actually speaking IRL, as the kids say. Joseph's third novel in the Tully Jarsdale series is called The Darkest Game, and it's available to pre-order right now on Amazon, and it's going to be released on April 5th. And last but not least, he is also a card-carrying member of the full cast and crew Columbo Cinematic Universe. As one of his listed influences on his website is Columbo co-creator Richard Levinson. Joseph Schneider, welcome to the full cast and crew podcast. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for uh, bringing that that up about the Columbo Cinematic Universe, because <laughs> it is it is very frequently on my mind. Columbo Cinematic Universe. Ah. One more thing. Those episodes to me are each one is like a little precious jewel. And I'm so I'm happy that there are so many that, that I can rewatch. And I do watch them very frequently. And and I and I love hearing your references. In fact, today I was listening to your your escape to Witch Mountain. Ah, yes. I only got about 15 minutes in before I had to to go do this. But I was wondering, I'm sure you did point out that. Both Donald Pleasance and Ray Milland were both. Oh yes, uh, yeah, I'm sure you did. I was. We just, we, we played many. Uh, we made plenty scenery. We played plenty of scenery chewing bits. And of course, Donald Pleasance is probably the most over the top Columbo murderer, which is saying a lot. Yeah. Um, in his uh, wine episode. Oh yes, which no I one just goes, watched about two days ago. That's just, that's just. It, it's sometimes hard to point people to that episode when they get curious about Columbo because. It's so over the top, but the performance is so brilliant. You can, you can, you kind of can't not point to it. So it's amazing to me how much Columbo still has a cultural relevance and gets referenced and is kind of, it's popular with the cool kids again. Like you said, each episode is a little gem, always worth revisiting. I think you're probably younger than I am, but at my age, you know, watching an episode of Columbo or Rockford Files, just with that kind of shot on film look from the 70s. Oh yeah. Or the eighties. It just, what is that? What, what does that like 
activate in our chemical makeup. It's so interesting that you you brought that up about the about the visual aesthetic because I, I'm not sure if that's the reason where the original series, I guess it's the first seven seasons, mm-hmm. resonate with me so much more than the ones from the 80s oh, yeah. and 90s. We, we, don't even, we pretend those don't exist on the podcast. Yeah, I, and I, <laughs> I understand why. It doesn't really feel like the same show, but I, I know exactly what you mean. You watch those Rockford Files, you watch Columbo, and uh, several other shows around the same time, and they're just, uh, well, like you said uh, in one of your episodes, they, the idea was to to do a wheel show, right? Where right. essentially get a full length feature every week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or at least full length feature quality. And I just love the thought that went into it, the time they took, and writing stuff today. You don't get to chew on stuff nearly as long as you were able to do back then. And for me, that's the incredible enjoyment is the byplay between these heavyweight actors. Yes. And this, these crackling screenplays that the, the, the you played a clip. I'm sorry, sorry to keep referencing your show, but I, I'm a, I'm I'm a huge fan. And oh, that's, thank one you. Of, that's one of the reasons I'm just thrilled that you that you had me on today was the the speech Columbo gives to the ladies league in the mm-hmm. Ruth Gordon episode. Mm-hmm. And like that was amazing writing. Great screenwriting. Yeah. You know? And I think um, I, I guess I, I missed that. I miss yeah. the pacing. Well, it's it's the only time that Columbo really articulates his whole ethos in mm-hmm. any of the episodes. And about my work being dark and frightening, I'll tell you the truth. I'm not sure about that either. I like my job. Oh, I like it a lot. And I'm not depressed by it. And I don't think the world is full of criminals and full of murderers because it isn't. It's full of nice people, just like you. And if it wasn't for my job, I wouldn't be getting to meet you like this. (laughs) And I'll tell you something else. Even with some of the murderers that I meet, I even like them too. Sometimes. Like them and even respect them. Not for what they did, certainly not for that. But for that part of them which is intelligent, or funny, or just nice. Because there's niceness in everyone. A little bit, anyhow. It can take a cop's word for it. Thank you, ladies. And he does it so brilliantly and so strangely for a TV episode, right? Like, he's... Yeah. He's making like direct eye contact with her and very pointedly explaining something to her in subtext while the overt text is, you know, an answer to a question posed to him by one of the ladies who lunches. So, yeah, yeah there, there's so many there's so many depths uh, to it there. And I, you're as I mentioned in the intro, you you hipped me to targets, which I had never even heard of, which is kind of bizarre. I consider myself a fairly well-informed, you know, cinast. You are. But I had never heard of Peter Bogdanovich's first feature film, Targets, as I said, from 1968, until you mentioned it on an Instagram post. And I was completely blown away when I watched it for the first time. I've now seen it three times in preparation for this. And I think it belongs with the first tier of the new Hollywood titles that are more well-known things like Bonnie and Clyde, uh, five easy pieces, you know, 
And I'm curious why you think it's not sort of referenced as one of those new Hollywood classics. I think it suffered from very poor timing. And I think it had, I think it really had to do with the assassinations that took place almost immediately after the film wrapped. Mm -hmm. So the film was shot in 67, but it came, it came out in 68 and Dr. King was murdered in April. Bobby Kennedy was murdered in July. And that essentially, I think, I think that that stopped any wider appreciation for the film. It was, it was way, it was too close to home. Uh, And, and it's interesting because of course it's, it's based actually, you know, the half of the story is based uh, the Bobby Thompson character, the, mm-hmm. the budding mass murderer who ends up, you know, snapping, was based very, very closely on the Whitman, uh, Charles Whitman shootings, which had occurred in uh, 1966 in August. In Texas, so, right? That's right. And mm-hmm. uh, he killed uh, 15 people mm-hmm. that day. And another one died of his injuries, I believe, in 2001. So right. 16 died in total from that. Shot, though, Liam. 31 or some, something anyway. Uh, so I believe that the, I believe that the, you know, real life uh, stopped the movie from becoming more widely known. I think it was just too uncomfortable, but it, I absolutely agree with you. It's an essential piece of that evolution, of course, uh, mentored by coming out of the whole Corman school of filmmaking without whom we wouldn't have mm-hmm. that, that new Hollywood that you were just referring to. So Bogdanovich was working, as so many people did, Coppola, you know, would-be heads who are going to lead the late 60s and 70s in Hollywood, are working for Roger Corman, who has an extremely efficient, some might say brutally efficient, (laughs) filmmaking operation, which employs a great number of people turning out not the most high level of cinema, but genre pictures of, of fairly high quality, given their genre, I would say. And I guess the proposition that was made was that Peter Bogdanovich as a young man, I don't know how old he was when he made this, maybe 24, 22, something insane like that. He had had worked, uh, had done some second unit things for Corman on a film. And I guess Corman was impressed. And that, of course, Corman being Corman, he was aware that Boris Karloff owed him two days of film work. (laughs) And I guess he told, I I have the supposed list of four criteria that mm-hmm. Corman gave Bogdanovich. Number one, he had to use Karloff for those two owed days. Number two, Bogdanovich also had to incorporate 20 minutes of footage from another Corman Karloff picture, 1963's The Terror, also starring a very young Jack Nicholson, who you can see in Targets. Mm-hmm. Number three, he also had to shoot another 40 minutes of movie without Karloff. And condition four, he had to do all of this for less than $125,000. And reportedly, if he could fulfill those four things, he could make whatever movie he wanted. (laughs) I said, okay. And uh, financially, it was no great deal, but uh, it was a thrill to uh, get the offer. And my wife could work on it with me, Polly Platt. So Polly and I spent a long time figuring, trying to figure out what we were going to do we saw the terror, and we couldn't figure out how to make Boris Karloff a legitimate heavy in the modern world. And how are we going to use this Victorian horror movie footage? How are we going to do? We couldn't figure out what to do. And in my frustration, I went to a joke. And I thought to myself, okay, I know how to begin the picture. We'll start in a projection room. The terror will end. 
and we'll, lights will come up, and Boris Karloff will be sitting there. He'll turn to Roger Corman, who'll be sitting there, and he'll say, Roger, that's the worst movie I've ever seen. And I thought, wait a minute, that's not a bad idea. And uh, coincidentally, some months back, the editor of Esquire, Harold Hayes, had said to me, why don't you make a movie about Charles Whitman? Charles Whitman was a fellow who'd gone to the Tower, University of Texas, and randomly shot a whole bunch of people before shooting himself. And I thought, if Karloff's in the movie, maybe he could be an actor. And maybe he could be an actor who wants to quit because his kind of horror, this kind of Victorian horror stuff, was pretty old-fashioned compared to somebody who goes to a tower and just randomly picks people up. That was modern horror. And that's how the picture, that's how it started. We thought maybe we'd tell two stories. And since we only had Karloff for two days, we thought, well, that'll make his story shorter and easier to shoot because we can cross-cut between the two stories. And that was how it started. But that's the background of how this movie came to be. And it's, it's sadly prescient, of course, has been noted many times, because as a society, we have not moved very far at all from the terror and the visceral reality of mass shootings as depicted in targets. But it's also very prescient in that I was reminded again of one of my favorite recent films, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Tarantino, which really owes a lot to this movie, I think. And Tarantino, I think, is a big fan of it. You pointed me to a couple things that he has referenced and mentioned about it in the past as well. Yeah, so I, I'm an enormous fan of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. When it came out, I had the reaction, I think you did. I think you said something like, I felt like it was made for me. Yes. That might have been one of your guests. That, that was you? Okay. Yes, that was so me. I, I, I saw it in the theaters and I, I was... I hadn't seen, I hadn't had experienced anything like that in the movies in, you know, 20 Mm -hmm. years, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And so um, the more I thought about the two films, not just the fact that they're, you know, one was shot at the time and the other one is is about the, you know, they take place a few months apart, essentially. Mm -hmm. But they're actually very, very similar. They have to do with um, the the old guard, so to speak, and in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, of course, it's Brad Pitt and DiCaprio dealing with, with uh, the new Hollywood in a way, but then also with the new evil. This is, this is a term that I, that I can't take credit for. This is Dr. Michael Stone, uh, who's a psychiatrist. Uh, he's, he wrote a book called The Anatomy of Evil, and he, he looks at kind of a cutoff point uh, around 1960. That after that, we started to see an increase in crimes that before just hadn't taken place. They were new kinds of crimes, Mm. crimes that weren't born out of hatred or animosity necessarily for the victims specifically, but that that were seemed motiveless and thereby horrifying in in a new way. Cliff Booth, being a World War II veteran, has has seen evil and has seen violence. And that's the sort of stuff he understands. Mm-hmm. But then he's confronted with this new kind of, of violence and this new mentality that, you know, he's, he's kind of amused by it because he's able to, to, <laughs> to conquer it so, so swiftly. But, and, but I think if you look at Karloff uh, in Targets, they're essentially, they play a very similar role. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, if you look at the way they're both, they both have to confront a new thing that they that they don't understand, um, that that isn't in keeping with their idea of what human beings, uh, how human beings behave. Right. Right. Yeah, that's such a good point. That new 
What did you call it? New crime? Is that the term? Dr. Stone calls it the new evil. The new evil. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's chilling. And very chillingly embodied in Targets by Tim O'Kelly as Bobby Thompson, who is the so normal as to be chilling and kind of evil in his normalcy. I mean, the way that the actor munches candy bars and listens to this really hilariously 60s rock music, which I gather was recorded just for the movie in his white Mustang convertible and just the, the way Bogdanovich shoots the scenes with his family, his mother and his father, who he calls sir all the time. So, uh, such a great performance. God, it's amazing. And I, you know, I surprised, I guess he died pretty young. I, I was, I was kind of curious to see had he done more than this, I guess he was around for a while, but he hadn't really worked past maybe the mid seventies. No. And I guess he died maybe in the nineties or something, but what a great performance. It's it's an outstanding performance, and and according to Bogdanovich, he he really enjoyed making the movie. He just, I don't know, he just, I guess he didn't pursue acting. But in a way, the fact that he never shows up again in anything, you know, <laughs> significant or meaningful, makes this performance all the more odd, and uh, and and it makes it stand out because you can't say, oh, you know, that's you know, him there he is, him. young. Yeah. Right. And then like older, you know, he's done all these movies that make him look, you know, different right. or harmless than these other parts. He's only done this one big thing. And so he kind of came out of nowhere and he went back to nowhere. And we're left with this performance that that, that is very, um, very, very verite is such a terrible way to put it. But I think you know what I mean. It doesn't feel uh, it doesn't feel like acting. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. So maybe with your acting background, you can answer this because I'm always curious about this. When you have a role like that, is the actor, Tim O'Kelly, playing it in a given way to give us that undercurrent of lurking evil? Or is he simply just playing it completely straight as a, you know, sort of 50s-esque teenager, what feels like a teenager, even though he's obviously in his mid twenties, is he playing it just straight and in the straightness, you know, put into Bogdanovich's whole other stuff that's going on in the movie. Is that what makes it feel creepy or is he doing something as an actor that gives us the creepiness? You know, I, I was curious about that same thing. And, you know, naturally these days you'd think, well, maybe he researched it or, or, you know, looked at other you know interviews with with sociopaths to try to kind of get under their skin a little bit. But there was nothing like that available at the time. And there were no interviews with Whitman because he he died at the scene. I believe he shot himself when the cops closed in. So there was no there was no source material for this performance. It was I think it's born out of the very spare screenplay. He doesn't have a ton of dialogue. The dialogue he does deliver is very um I think he does play it straight, doesn't he? Yeah, I guess so. That's what I'm... It doesn't feel affected to me. <laughs> no. And in a way, and I'll, I'll tell you something, I don't know if you know this, but so they, they had to shoot in these gun stores. There are two gun stores in the movie they have to mm-hmm. shoot in, right? And <laughs> of course, Peter Bogdanovich couldn't tell them that they were going to shoot in these <laughs> stores to make a movie about a mass murderer. Do you know right. what he told them? No, I don't. He told them that he was making a movie about a father and his son <laughs> and how close they were because they went hunting on the weekend. Oh, God. <laughs> and that seems to me like when, oh. when he's in those stories and he's giving that performance, that lines up in a way with the story mm-hmm. that Bogdanovich would have told them. 
Absolutely. And you know what? Those scenes are so amazing. I read one of the articles that I was sending you, I think mentioned this, that, you know, he really wanted the purchasing of the guns and an insane amount of ammo. What even sounds like a jarring amount of ammo to the ear as he goes into a store and asks for something like 500 shells or something. He wanted it to be like walking into a convenience store and just, you know, picking up a bag of potato chips and a couple sodas. And that's exactly how it's played. He's always munching on a candy bar. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's half distracted. He's not even really focused on what he's purchasing. And just the mechanics of, you know, oh, you're going to want the case. Don't forget your receipt. You know, let me check. Bill it to my dad. Right. Yeah, bill it to my dad. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's like buying milk in the fifties. Yeah, precisely. It's it's very chilling. And this uh, his line on the way out. I'm going to shoot some pigs. Yeah. Uh, Bogdanovich did take that. That is what Whitman told the gun owner, uh, the gun gun shop owner. As well. Right. And I and I read that I think the the note which you see after he shoots his his wife and mother and an unfortunate delivery boy mm-hmm. in their home is also taken partially from Whitman's note. I don't I think I think Whitman left a much a much greater detailed note, but that those kind of few chilling lines, I think written in a red pencil or a red crayon or something, are taken from Whitman too. Now that's a terrific scene. Uh, oh. the, the, the shooting scene, <laughs> the, the way it's done oh with, with no stingers, no music, none of that bullshit. It's just, it's so uh, stark and mundane almost. Mm-hmm. And then the, the way, again, Bogdanovich lets it unroll. With, and then, you know, he does the cleanup. He takes the bodies, drags them into the beds and covers them up. It's, um, it, it's far ahead of its time in terms of what it accomplishes there. Oh my God, the camera movement and the, the use of natural sound coming from the television. Um, you know, again, 68, I mean, it's very, very early, even for new Hollywood to me. And it's so, so on point about something that is so beyond his years as a filmmaker. In a way, it wasn't until I watched this movie that I kind of like had that final piece slip into place in my kind of generalized uh, feelings towards Bogdanovich, who mm-hmm. I guess not unironically towards the end of his career and life, you know, took on some of the similar, similar place that like Orson Welles was when he was a big champion mm-hmm. of Wells, when Wells was kind of washed up and having difficulty in Hollywood, right? Like Bogdanovich kind of followed a similar path to that, either wore out his welcome through, behavior or fell out with the times or whatever it was, although he did make some excellent rock and roll documentaries over the last few years of his career. And um, he, um, he did a lot of, he did more, uh, he did a lot of acting as well. You know, he had true. a lot of guest spots on Sopranos and, and even on a show my parents did uh, briefly down in uh, Albuquerque. Oh, what was that? <laughs> you, <laughs> well, it, it only ran for one season. <laughs> hey, one season uh, is an accomplishment. Come on. Yeah, it, it was it was actually an excellent show. It was called Easy Money. It was about a it was about one of those payday loan a family that runs a payday loan business. It oh, was very like dark. And Laurie Metcalf played the the oh, great, um, great actor, the head of the this family. She was the scheming and um, just wonderful kind of villainous character and uh, a terrific performance. And Bogdanovich played a crooked um doctor who was giving out, you know, giving out prescriptions to anyone who wanted anything. Perfect. And, and it was, a ter- and so it was because of that, that I 
that I was lucky enough to get to to meet him, but I hadn't seen. I'm just kicking myself. I hadn't seen this movie yeah. yet. I was too young to appreciate the man I was. <laughs> you meeting. would have been picking his brain all the time. Oh, man. <laughs> I thought, yeah. Wait, so walk me through how you blocked out the camera movements in the living room. How did you do that? Totally. He's like, totally. kid, I got lines to memorize here. <laughs> and I get you. You share with me a note that he wrote. Is that from that time? No, this. So about a year ago. I wrote an article about targets for the Crime Writers Associate, which is a British crime mm-hmm. writers uh, group. Uh, you know, they're, they're the ones who give out the dagger award. Yeah. The, the info. So um, I because my folks knew him, I got the article to him and and wow. he very, very graciously read it. And um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very happy because, it, you know, he's 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 gone now and I, I'm, I'll never get to meet him and tell him how much his work influenced me. But um, what a terrific, what a terrifically generous guy he was. And what did your parents say about how he was to work with on the set? Oh, marvelous. Just marvelous. That's great. I I think he mellowed into, I mean, he became a much more deft and nuanced actor, you know, as he went on in life, I think. And um, I'm not going to say he's jarring in targets, but he's sort of not yet the actor he would become. And he he knows, and he knows that. And and he talks, he talks about, while cutting away from himself, from his performances sometimes. And, uh, but he also points out that he's the only man probably in cinema to be in a bed with Boris Karloff, or at least (laughs) on a bed with Boris Karloff. Well, he also, I mean, when I say the final piece clicked, it's kind of like, oh, okay. Like if you're what, 22, 23, 24 years old and you make targets. Yeah. I mean, you have a right to be cocky. Um, You know, that's something not many people can do. I mean, there were some amazing other people on the film, you know, Verna Fields, who would go on to win at least one Oscar, if not many. I believe she was the sound editor. On She is. And she did all of the. So like it was her idea to do the ice cream while he's cleaning up the bodies. You oh, my the God. The ice cream truck. The entire scene on top of the oil tanks where <laughs> where he's firing at the freeway. Yeah. They didn't have they couldn't afford to record sound. So that was all added in by Verna Fields later oh, on. Wow. She had to do every single little bit of his eating the sandwiches. Everything. That's amazing. That is amazing. The sound design is incredible. Yeah. And her, her contributions and uh, Laszlo Kovacs contributions as a cinematographer are, are, are unreal. I guess he would also go on to do mask, which we've done on the pod, which I love uh, speaking of later Bogdanovich movies. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about it was, you know, it, another thing it reminded me of was now we're living in a time where, as I said, we, we still have to deal with these mass shootings and we're also sort of divided again and also individualized or isolated through our phones, right? Now it's phones. I was struck in the, uh, in the drive-in movie scene by kind of how prescient that was too, because everyone's together at the movie theater, but they're all in their own car. Yes. And so when the, when the, the new evil spreads, most people are kind of either totally unaware of it or even just roll their window up as someone was shot and killed next to them. I mean, like these incredible shots are used to, I think, indicate, you know, humanity's ability to just be uh, focused on their own situation, mm-hmm. you know, in their car while these horrible things are happening around them. I thought that was an amazing scene. It is. And I, I don't know to what extent, um, it was thought through about how amazing that was at the time, because, you know, he had this insane shooting schedule and he, I think they, 
that was the that was the bulk of it. The 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 bulk of the budget went to that sequence, mm. which is about a I think what is like about a twenty minute sequence yeah. at the end there. And Sam Fuller had told Bogdanovich, "Save your money for the for the big finish." Mm. So I don't know how much of that was was intentional, but you're you're absolutely right. There's this you know they're together, but they're isolated. They're, therefore, they're not able to to assemble or fight back quickly enough before many are murdered. Um, I'd also like to draw a parallel again to once upon a time in Hollywood, which had that terrific drive-in that mm. they resurrected briefly. It's not the same one. I don't think this is the receded drive-in, but the idea that you have a guy shooting out of a movie screen, out of a hole that he's made in the movie screen at people sitting in the, in the cars. What a, what an audacious really idea. It still is. It still has the power to shock. Shoots the, poor, uh, shoots the poor projectionist even as well. And he shoots, he shoots um, Mike Farrell from MASH. <laughs> really? <laughs> Mike Farrell from MASH is guy in phone booth. Oh, I didn't know that. That's terrific. So, yeah, if you look at the IMDb credits, I was looking through for some other Columbo Cinematic Universe appearances. Uh, not that Mike Farrell is one, but I saw Mike Farrell. I said, it can't be the Mike Farrell. Indeed, in 1968, Mike Farrell plays a guy who gets shot and killed in the phone booth at the movie theater. Wow, you've got a good eye. That was, that's <laughs> that's, I'm, I'm impressed. Welcome to my welcome to my blessing and my curse. Um, oh, I know exactly what you mean. Okay, um, now talking about real Hollywood, I want to ask you a question. So stay yeah, with sure, me here. Sure. I'm a very big fan of books like Mike Davis's City of Quartz oh. and documentaries like Tom Anderson's Los Angeles Plays Itself. Things that I think go beneath and behind the stereotype of Hollywood in air quotes. Yes, uh, a thing that Tom Anderson really pointedly says in Los Angeles plays itself doesn't even actually exist, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's the only place in America where everyone would say it exists and it's actually not a real thing. These, these kinds of books and documentaries, I think bring us closer to what I call the real Los Angeles, mm -hmm. something that I also think once upon a time in Hollywood does as well as Jackie Brown, which is really set in quote unquote, real Los Angeles in a way that I love all the battered and brutal glory of real kind of working class uh, Los Angeles. And I think your books do that too. Do you think that the movie Targets is of a piece with mm -hmm. those excellent works of art, your books included? Wow, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. I, I, <laughs> I do. I, so Targets was a, was a huge influence on me. Jackie Brown also. I love that movie. It's, it's criminally underrated. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think for me, there, there is uh, there are, you can get pieces of it. You can get pieces of the dream, but it's not, it's not, it, it, it it's not a ready-made thing that like you, that I think a lot of people are lured there mm -hmm. that they can like somehow you plug into this thing, the, this, this vibe that exists. And then all of a sudden you're in, you know, the you know some sort of magical place right that that place does not exist the there is a rush that you can get from the creative juice of the place mm -hmm. that is that is legitimate and for me as a kid growing up there i felt like i grew up in the perfect place from who i was the the right you know i was i was born in the right place at the right time to the right parents who nurtured and understood uh, the my love of the entertainment business, and they raised me on 
on great movies. In fact, I remember I, I had been a, a fan of the Universal Monster movies since I could walk. Frankenstein was my favorite movie when I was five, Carlos Frankenstein. And, but, but when I was 12, my folks sat me down and they said to me, we're going to show you the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> and uh, we're going to show you all of our favorite movies, the movies that made us. And I said, I'm not interested. You know, I, I didn't, I, I, yeah. I didn't want to be challenged at 12. Right. I wanted to go out, uh, you know, watch whatever horrible thing was out. And, you know, because I, I have a lot of lowbrow tastes as well. I can't, mm -hmm. I can't help myself, but they insisted. And in my seventh grade year, they showed me, God, what are they? Dog Day Afternoon, Godfather, Network, Chinatown, Oh, Lucky Man, Butch and Sundance. Yeah, I could go on and on. All in my 12th grade, uh, seventh, grade seventh grade year. <laughs> and, and what was great about growing up in that area that I lived in is that you could very easily watch one of those movies and then go to the, you know, Costco or Trader Joe's and run into the character actors. And sure. you know, we lived in a part of town. We didn't, you know, where the character actors live, the writers and the character actors live in the East side and the movie stars live in Beverly Hills. <laughs> and so for me as a kid, it was, it was strange to be and, and wonderful to be able to see these incredible movies. And they were absolutely right. They were life-changing films. I didn't know movies could do that. And then, and then, you know, you go down and you see, see these wonderful uh, character actors and me being, you know, a shy person by nature, I, I still would, would always go up and say, you know, because I would knew, I would know their names, my dad and who I. Do you, who do you remember running into? Oh man. Uda, so uh let's see udo kier <laughs> oh my god udo kier if you Ron, ran into udo kier at like the supermarket that would be the most I ran surreal into him twice uh richard real do you know richard real richard okay real. so he was the jumping to conclusions guy in office space richard real uh okay in casino Hold on, let plays, me look at him let me he look plays at the him. banker that joe pesci threatens in casino is it r-e-a-l r-i-e-h-l-e R I E H L E. As soon as you see him, you go, oh, that. Okay, yes, yes. Okay. okay. That guy. Um, oh, I love him. I love yeah. him. He probably um, gets mistaken for Wilford Brimley 30 times a day. Oh, that's got to be hard. Oh, I love <laughs> Richard Real. He's great. Richard Real, uh, Ron Glass, Larry Drake, um, who else? Uh, you know that the uh, the actress. I'm sorry. Uh, what what's her name? Um, Jeanette Goldstein. Anyway, it was just like you you yeah. go out and you you see these wonderful actors and and I kind of grew up um, on you know sets. My parents uh, they met on the Incredible Hulk back in '78, mm -hmm. and then they they became writing partners in the late '80s. And they so I I kind of grew up on on sets. So for me, I I I see that part of it, but I know how vanishingly small that is um, even even if you grow up around it hollywood is mostly disappointment and it's mostly uh anguish yes and you look at this industry with even this, at the highest level even at the highest level mm -hmm. oh there's no security at all mm -hmm. there's no security and you uh and and i think that sense of of you know when you hit success i'm i'm assuming um, as, as, as an actor, I never achieved any success as an actor, but if, but if you, but if you do, you know that your career is, is balancing on the head of a pin and, and it could go any way in any direction and probably not up, uh, because of, you know, very, you know, maybe it's age, maybe it's, you, you do one role and it kills your career. 
um, whatever. Well, and that's so, what I think Tarantino did so brilliantly well in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is put all of that mm-hmm. into Rick Dalton, you know, who is who is so perfectly portrayed by DiCaprio as smart enough to understand all those forces you mentioned, but also sort of corrupted enough by his experiences in Hollywood, his success in Hollywood to that date to kind of be unprepared to navigate it. And that's such a knife edge for the actor to 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 brilliantly pull off. Fucking lines, embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people. Well, you're drinking all night. Fucking drinking again, eight goddamn fucking whiskey sours. <sighs> fucking bullshit. <laughs> you're a fucking miserable drunk. You fucking remembering your fucking lines. I practiced them and now I don't look like I goddamn practiced them. You're sitting there like a fucking baboon. <laughs> that goddamn Jim Stacy and show all of them on that goddamn fucking set who the fuck Rick Dalton is, all right? Let me tell you something. You don't get these lines right. I'm gonna blow your fucking brains out tonight, all right? Your brains are gonna be splattered all over your goddamn pool. I mean it, motherfucker. Get your shit together. And I think it's why people like us who I think love old Hollywood um, and maybe we love it because we romanticize it because certainly, I guess if you're an actor in the studio system, you have even less choice than actors have now. Mm-hmm. Yet, obviously, Bogdanovich loves that era. You know, you're talking about that era when you're talking about the Universal uh, monster movies and yeah. Karloff and part of the joy of Targets. And I guess something that was jarring to reviewers like Ebert and people like that, that I read period reviews of the film from, mm-hmm. they kind of found the juxtaposition of the Karloff story with the shooting a little clunky, which I didn't. I mean, I, I think because of Tarantino, you know, I'm more able to keep those, those two narratives in place as I watched the film than maybe people were in 1968. I don't know, but I think having an appreciation for an actor of Karloff's heft and career and experience at the time that you're seeing him make this movie in 1968, which I think was the last film he ever made, is, is amazing. It's part of the love for Hollywood that Bogdanovich, I think, always had and always was a champion of Hollywood and also of the people that Hollywood kind of discarded and forgot about. You know, even someone like Orson Welles, it's kind of insane that Hollywood did that, but he did it to himself too. But that, yeah. that's, that love for old Hollywood, I think, is something I kind of connected with in, in Targets. And I also connected with it in your books. I'm not sure if it's the first book or the second book that's set partially in the revival movie house with all the horror artifacts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the first like, one. Yeah. That, so that one, to me, that's kind of plugging into a very similar thing that the Karloff thing is plugging into for me when I watch this. You know, I, um, I'm glad you said that about romanticizing because I think – even though we know better, we can't help it in the same sense that when you're watching a really good magic show and you know that it's not possible, you still 
believe your eyes. And so even for those of us who know better and, and who have a very, you know, kind of world weary, cynical view of, of, of the, of the downside of the entertainment industry, you can't help but absolutely love it anyway and romanticize it simply because of the product, <laughs> you know, because of the transformative nature of the form and, and, and the places those stories have taken us, we can't help but still say, you know what, even with all of its warts and all of the misery surrounding it and the uncertainty and the anxiety, still without movies, where would we be? You know? But is it, is it the product do you think, or is it the process? Like, is it, is it the act of being yeah. on the set and making a movie more so than that very fleeting compared to the time it takes for the movie to get made, right? You're talking about a timeline of, of years, four or five years at a minimum, really, for a film to go from, uh, you know, conception to it's on the screen somewhere. Yeah, unless it's targets, but so is, is, well, of course, unless you're working yeah. for Corman, which is probably about six days. But yeah. you know, do you think the romanticism is as much the process? Because I kind of I feel like for the Karloffs of the world, for the Bogdanoviches of the world, yeah. it must be living, you know, living on this, living that set life, which I think is why the craft and the institution has always attracted people. You know, people who are interested in the vagabond life, maybe people who. Uh, have difficulty forming long-lasting attachments. I mean, it's very easy to fall into a thing like Hollywood making movies, making TV shows where it can be so all-consuming and so intense and then it's over and you don't see those people again. So I wonder if it's the, if it's the product, yes, mm -hmm. but is it also the life? Is it the, is it the, is it the process? I think, I think so. And I, I, I think that's a beautiful point you just made. It, it is it is running away to join the circus mm -hmm. when you work on a movie shoot, I guess. I mean, I, I haven't worked on professional I, shoots. I'm, I'm, my, my stuff is mostly prose, but, um, but I've seen I've, I've been around it enough to to feel that that, that excitement on the set is that there's nothing that can touch it. That's, that's all very true. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I was trying to capture, to capture that the the idea that you can have two hundred people working together to create a single unified experience, and that each of those people is a is an artist or technician in their own way, and that that is pretty incredible. I can't think of any other form mm -hmm. that demands that kind of uh, that actually works quite that way. And so, um, and I briefly worked as a very very briefly, you know, that theater. Um, uh, the new Beverly that Tarantino owns. Right. I, I, I trained, I, I didn't actually work there, but I trained there as a projectionist. Um, and so that's why I, I wrote those scenes that took mm. place up in the projection booth, because to me, that was, that was a whole new experience. Be, you, you know, when you get those films, you run the entire print through your, through your hand, the yeah. whole thing, you know, you wear these white gloves these, and you run the whole thing through your hand and it and and when you do that, it reminds you of all of the all of the work that goes into creating every single one of those frames, mm -hmm. and how much work again it takes, you know, so to create this thing and then to shape it. And I guess, um, I guess the what you're talking about in the process there, yeah, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? And it's and 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 it, I think it softens some of the the cruelty uh, of the business when you see 
that incredible love and beauty that goes into making these things. Did, when you were growing up, did you get a sense or do you have a sense now? Did your parents find it all rewarding and worthwhile in addition to financially? Like, was it, was it a fulfilling life to spend writing for television in that way? Oh, they're, they're very happy with the, with, with the writing life. You know, I think they both started out as, as actors and kind of like I did. And we all, we all kind of came to our senses at some point (laughs) in our twenties and they, they got into the, the writing business. They, they love it. And they, they're one of the few writing teams, uh, writing couples. Mm. And uh, I think they told me recently, they're probably the oldest writing couple still working today, uh, which which I think is is great. I, I I can't ever see them retiring. They've they've always been very very happy doing it. It's it's hard work in, mm-hmm. in a way that uh, it made it so that <clears throat> you know they they were almost always having to 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 you know there was no really such thing as a vacation for them. You know they mm-hmm. could might get like one day off, but they they always had to be working on something. But it gave them so much pleasure to create these stories. And I think it it rubbed off on me. I I, I prefer being on this side of the, mm. I'm not on the camera in my case, but on this side of it. I'm just thinking of all these amazing scenes. Like you mentioned, there's the, the scenes in the house are so amazingly done. There's a scene where they're watching, I don't know what show it is. They're watching some sort of- uh, Oh, know. it's uh, Joey Bishop. Oh, it's Joey uh, Bishop. Yeah. yeah. That scene is so fucked up and weird so because- funny. All that's happening is the camera is sort of perched kind of higher up in the corner of the room, almost looking down Mm -hmm. at all four members of the family as they're just watching the show. Nothing is happening other than that. And they're laughing normally, but there's a disquieting menace underneath that kind of jocularity that I have no idea how Bogdanovich accomplishes that because there's no music. I don't think there's any score even in the whole picture. There's no score. It's all diegetic. <laughs> so how the hell does he do that? <laughs> that was, um, so a couple things. One, I have to applaud his incredible uh, bravery at making, you know, uh, making very clear creative choices on your first film that, that like, <laughs> yeah. the, like, and, and having a, having a very clear vision because that's all one shot. That whole sequence is, it's about a five minute take. And that's wow. incredible in and, in and of itself. It's just like a whole roll of film. It's, yeah, right. Yeah. And if they, I mean, that's, you talk about the budget. So the movie was $125,000, as you pointed out. 25 went to Karloff right out the gate. So they really <laughs> made it for 100,000. Right. So of course, every second that camera's rolling, it's not like today, right? So um, that, that sequence, I think, first of all, it starts off, um, uh, with with that color scheme, you'll notice all the Bobby Thompson scenes are in mm. these hues of these cold blues mm-hmm. and, and whites, and that was intentional. And the, I don't think they, even though you have four people sitting around laughing, they're not really interacting with each other. I don't no. think they're touching each other. They're just all kind of, you know, it's almost kind of robotic. And then he and his wife get up, Bobby Thompson and his wife get up and go in the bedroom, and the camera stays on them. And they have that discussion in there where he he comes as close as he ever does mm. to asking for help. Yes. I get strange thoughts sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I get, I get these and she's like, guys. sit me up, dear. Will you have, I'm late. Right. I've got to go. Like the disconnection. So you're uh-huh. so right that that four people in a room who are all alone, even as they're watching the same thing together, I guess that's how he 
creates yeah. that sense and, and with the use of color. Can you imagine the, I presume, the, the regular Corman crew members kind of like dealing with Bogdanovich, who's really making this amazing kind of art film and like what they must have been thinking on the set when they're used yeah. to just sort of the Corman process? Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's a, and, and that's why I have to say, like, I'm, I'm really impressed at being able to stick to your creative choices when people were probably saying, come on, hurry, hurry up. Let's get, let's get going here. Um, and he edited the entire thing himself afterwards too. He did wow. uh, on, on a, on a moviola. Oh he didn't God. give himself credit for it because he didn't want it to be one of those movies was like written, directed, starring, edited by, you know, <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich that would have, mm. he thought that would look kind of silly. So he doesn't give himself credit, but he did edit the entire thing. And he does, you know, he does all that interior work, which I presume is on a set uh, so brilliantly well. But then when the, when the, when the, when the film goes outside, he also has such a deft handling of the Los Angeles environment. I think that's the thing that connects it to, with me to Jackie Brown, once, mm -hmm. a, once upon a time in Hollywood, Los Angeles plays itself. Just those scenes of him driving through parts of Los Angeles that aren't sort of the Los Angeles you think of in a stereotypical fashion. You're right. You're right. Uh, 405 freeway, not, <laughs> not a place that anyone wants to be. Um, is that what, is that where he is when he sees the, like the oil refinery or whatever he, he goes on top uh, of? Yeah. And when they, when he's driving, when he's driving home, he's driving down the, the 405. It's, it's a miserable, it's just a miserable <laughs> stretch of concrete. Um, I, I love LA. Like I, I, you know, but I, the 405. But do you I think it was that in 1968? Was it miserable? No, in no, you can see it. it looks, no, it's a breeze. It's open. It looks, it's... Yeah, it's a total <laughs> breeze. Um, by the way, all those shots were guerrilla. You're not, you're not allowed to shoot on the freeway in Los Angeles, and you're not allowed to even shoot the freeway. Uh, really? So, yeah, also all of that stuff, at least at the time, you, you weren't even allowed to film the freeway like that. Wow. So that was all. And that cop who shows up after one of the shootings, that, 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 that was just a cop they were filming he didn't know he was in the movie but um but yes exactly the, those those parts the four shooting the 405 shooting the 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 you know Reseda and Boris Karloff has that great line he says my god how ugly this town has become yes and, that, and those one-story building parts yeah. of LA right mm -hmm. like that's Jackie Brown too that's the mm -hmm. That's the, I don't know. I love that. I don't know why. Um, you know, I'm not a Los Angeles native. I've been there innumerable times, but mm -hmm. whenever I do go there, that's the part of LA I'm always kind of interested in. And I think other directors have, I'm pretty sure that Michael Mann copied that very high overhead shot of the drive-in for Heat. I think it's a different drive-in oh, in Heat. Wow, I don't, it's yeah. not the Reseda drive-in. There's another famous drive-in that, that that's the location of in Heat. I love that um, shot. But I think he uses that same shot. Maybe the it's maybe the finishing shot of the movie, which is so brilliant. The way Bogdanovich ends the movie, just on this this empty uh, drive-in parking lot, and his white car is the only car left. It's such a damn it's good shot. Fucking crazy! <laughs> oh my god! I just could yeah. not believe how good it was. So yeah, I love those things. Okay, I want to talk about your books a little bit too. Oh, okay, sure. And I want to ask you if you know. Now I read an inordinate amount of crime fiction, all kinds from all over the world. Uh, I'd like to think I have a pretty discerning taste for what is run of the mill and ordinary, and then what is superlative in the genre. And the reason I kind of freaked out when I read your first book and posted about it on Instagram was because it struck me as something new in a genre. It is pretty damn near impossible really to do anything new in. I mean, when you're talking about Los Angeles detectives, 
set kind of in a contemporary time, not only do you have the massive shadow of, you know, one of your influences, I think Michael Connolly and Bosch, who sort of, he's doing that. Like if you're going to try to do that, he's doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Very much. He owns that space in such a, such a huge business way. And also in terms of the character and the novels, but you found a way into that. How did you, did you know that your atypical detective approach was a way in, or was that just something you wanted to do and you had the opportunity to do it? I think for me, the most important thing was I really wanted to tell a story about the destructive power of, of dreams and, and ambition in, in the entertainment industry. And I needed, and I wanted to tell a, tell a Hollywood story and I, and I wanted it to be a crime story. The thing is, as you, as you point out, being original in that area, you almost have to do it consciously. And I had to do it. I did do it consciously because I didn't want to, I didn't want to compete with, uh, with existing characters mm-hmm. and existing material. I, and, and, and I didn't want to, and I couldn't have even if I had wanted to, because that's not my background. I, you know, Michael Connolly, brilliant writer, uh, began writing the crime beat for LA times mm-hmm. and had been doing so for years before. He, so he knows that world and he knows how cops talk and he knows uh, he knows he knew a lot of procedure um, for mm-hmm. so when he when he did begin writing for me I I I come from a family of writers and my you know, I I didn't have any of that and it would have sounded like complete bullshit if I had tried to mm. to you know to have a tough alpha male cop it wouldn't have worked I could you know I couldn't pull it off so I I had to basically try to figure out how I could turn a weakness into a strength mm. which is why I have my character being a kind of failed academic um and actually with you know he's very ignorant of the movie business he doesn't know any he, he doesn't really watch movies right and that's not like me at all so i gave that to his partner so at least you know mm. he could he could have and i didn't want him to be a carbon copy of me i th- i don't think i would be friends with well I don't, it doesn't seem like he is to me at all which no. i think is you know uh, i have noticed i have met several crime writers and i and i have noticed a thing which i've talked about on the pod before which I think is why the Tully Jarsdale character is all the more impressive to me. A lot of times, uh, for example, Lee Child, I had an opportunity to work with him and meet, meet him once. And he is Reacher, like not physically, mm-hmm. um, but the way Reacher is personality-wise, that is Lee Child. And so when I met him and worked with him, I thought, oh, okay, I get it. Like, this is how he can do this over and over again is that's how he looks at the world. And because that's how he looks at the world, he can put that in this character who is not like him because he's six foot six and 245 pounds and ex-military and all these things that Lee Child isn't. Mm -hmm. But that's, I think, how he did it is that he really views everything that way. And he has sort of a, a certainty about his own worldview, which can be a bit brusque sometimes. And I think he puts that into the Reacher character. With your book, I think you're your interests seem a lot broader than the Tully Jarsdale character, yet you still managed to kind of figure out a creative way to do, to, to have a character that feels plausibly real and yet also place him in a, in a plausibly real feeling LAPD. And I think that's a real accomplishment to me. And then you have the other layer of that brilliantly depicted real LA and all of those things together. Was that a conscious effort to kind of marry all of those three things? I think, um, yeah, it, it was. I'm, I'm 
I'm really, really happy to hear that it came off because the book definitely didn't resonate with everybody. I, I, I don't think it's, I, um, I don't think it's found its audience yet. Um, you know, but, do you mean but, that like the crime audience itself hasn't yeah, found I it? Think, because I think, um, I think that some people, you know, they, they, they want, they want a very specific thing. Mm. And I understand that. Uh, and I'm, and I, I, I don't want to, I don't really want to write that kind of stuff. I want to do stuff that, that, that really excites me. And so I, I, I said this challenge for myself, could I, could I tell a story that was meaningful to me, but was also as technically accurate as you can be in fiction. And so I, 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 I hope that I, I hope that I got that right. I'm very glad to hear you say that. And I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to you. And how did you go from the process of thinking, Hey, I'm going to try and do this to seeing the book in the bookstores? Well, I think that I, I had, I had, um, I had failed so many times <laughs> at so many different things. <laughs> and, the mark and, and, of all great writers. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was this kind of, um, I, I was, I, I had pitched a few shows and none of them had, had gone anywhere. And it had happened enough times that I said, well, you know, when you write a, when you write a project and they, and if they buy it and shelve it, then it's, it's dead and that's mm-hmm. it. It's, it's over. And maybe if I write a book, at least, even if nothing happens with it, at least I'll have it and uh, <laughs> right. a calling card, you know, and maybe I can make it better over the years or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that was really, it came, it came out of a necessity to want to do something creative, but not to want to have to uh, depend at least at first um, on, on the approval of, of mm-hmm. other people. So that's how it, that's how I decided to do it. It's interesting what you said about the audience, because I, I don't, I guess I didn't think about that because I, I would read widely in the genre from with, with some discernment, right? Like I won't read a lot of sort of mass market kind of uh, crime stuff if it doesn't have an authorial kind of originality or presence to it. So mm. when I was really recommending your book, I found the people that really were responding to it were, I guess, kind of very literate crime fans who kind of similarly need something to sink their teeth into. Those were the people that really, after they kind of took my recommendation, would would write back and say like, wow, you're so right. Like, I'm so glad you recommended this book. Wow. So I guess I hadn't thought about the reality that like when you're writing in quote unquote a genre, yeah, right, you have to deal with the probable annoyance of the the overwhelming majority of the the genre fans who kind of just want something like that's already being given to them in innumerable places and how do you how do you give them something that's a little more complicated and full that still actually ticks all the boxes of a crime novel that you want and a procedural and an LAPD you know like I mean it it does all that stuff it's not like it doesn't do that you just have a protagonist who is kind of an odd duck and yet plausibly is in the LAPD. I think he did a really good job with his backstory and why he's doing what he's doing. And he believes in it. He does. Uh, it. Even as his, his, his parents don't believe in it, right? Like he, right. he believes in what he's doing. He's not a fool. He's not a sap. And yet he's educated enough and aware enough maybe to be a little removed from like some of the day-to-day in a sense. Like you get the sense he's a little Asperger's-y maybe. And that kind yeah. of protects him from having to think too deeply about some of these things that maybe would unravel if he did, but you never question his commitment to what he's doing in a way that I think 
is a really, really original character. I mean, I'm just really excited to, to see where it goes in, in the third book. And I hope there's going to be many after that. Oh, thank you. That, that means the world to me. Um, that really does. I really appreciate it because it's a lonely process. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I do them after work, you know, I go home and I, and I, I usually do them after the wife and kids have gone to bed. Mm-hmm. I do my quota and then, and then I just, I hope that it, that it, that it lands with someone. So I, I, I can't tell you how much that means to me. Thank you. Well, what are some of the other, uh, what are some of the other crime movies or books that, that influenced you? So I'm with you. I'm a huge Ira Levin fan. Mm. And you, uh, well, yeah. at least I, I know you've, you've read Rosemary's Baby. Yes. And you, yes. So it, we did a couple of those movies. So, yeah, I think he's one of the most underrated American writers. Mm. His first novel, A Kiss Before Dying, mm-hmm. blew me away. It, it, because, because it is an inverted mystery. It's a how catch him, just like mm-hmm. Columbo. Mm-hmm. You know exactly mm-hmm. who the villain is. And the mystery comes from how are they going to nail this guy? And so for me, that book exploded my my world of what could be done in crime literature. Mm-hmm. So Ira Levin's a huge influence and just his pacing, like even, even his books that are so high concept, like Stepford Wives or, which is yeah. a, a 99 page gem mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> boys from Brazil, which is about as high concept as you can get, right, you know? right. <laughs> but, but it's still, it's, it's written so damn well that you're, you, you're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's yeah. go along with this. But so I, I, I so admire Levin and, there's a writer who did only a couple books. His name's Charles Williford, but he wrote one called Miami Blues, which oh, yeah. made into a um, great movie. See? Okay, I'm so glad you said that because not a lot that of movie. Very underrated. It. It's so underrated. Yeah, yeah. it was it's too hard. weird for its time. I mean, if it came out ten years later or now, it would be a, turned into a very high-profile Netflix or Amazon Prime series. I completely um, agree with you. I mean, <laughs> it was too weird. Yeah. It was it was it was weird crime. That's that's what the wrinkle was, you know. It was just had a, it had an attitude that I thought they really captured, and Alec Baldwin did a great job in. Um, that's a very underrated movie. I got to watch it again. Yeah, I I I think it's it could be a potential. Um, I don't want to do your programming for you, but that could be a potential absolutely someday because it's also it's got the you know these terrific. Uh, character. It's got Charles Napier in it. It's got mm-hmm. the coroner from Silence of the Lambs, who was you know, <laughs> Charles Napier. Was, I th- who, so who directed? Was it Jonathan Demi? Jonathan Demi, yeah. Miami the Blues. Did it, uh, I think it was Demi. Was it? Um, oh no, sorry. It was George Armitage. Oh, George Armitage. Oh, okay. Yeah. But Demi must have been involved because those two guys are in it. And then, and Jennifer Jason Lee is fantastic. Fred Ward. So his detective in mm. that is also very off type. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's this down and out guy living in this crumb, this rotting Florida hotel. Uh, I loved that character. And I, I think that was also very influential to me. Right. Miami blues. That's great. That's great. And what, what, what about movies? What, what crime movies do you love? Oh, now you're talking. So let's <laughs> do crime movies. Um, crime movies. I mean, is that the I, genre you watch the most or no? Oh, I like, think so. I think okay. so. Yeah. I've, I'm, I'm, uh, at least it's, it's one of the ones I, I try to see everything I can. Yes. And I, right. I, I love the movie you recommended over the summer. Um, the, uh, riders of justice. I thought that was terrific. That was really well done. That was yeah. one of the coolest movies I've seen all year. That was very um, cool. 
but what else? Let's see the the limey, which again, not mm. a lot of people love, but I I I'm very close to it. Um, but let's see uh, what have we got. I gotta watch the limey again. I I you know. I think we mentioned, I think we talked about this a little bit on Instagram, but I thought Nikki cat was brilliant in that and just yeah. a few throwaway scenes, but I can't, I, I have the feeling that it just didn't hold together for me as a movie, as a pretty big Soderbergh guy outside of that. Sure. But I need to see it again. Cause I, out I, of sight is, is, oh my is God. incredible. Brilliant. Right? Genius. And I think the limey didn't succeed for a lot of people, but. Um, Parent stamp though. But yeah, Terrence Stamp, and also looking, you know, when you realize that the whole thing, it, I, I apologize to any of your listeners. Is it okay if I kind of <laughs> give away the framing of it? Uh, yeah, I think if they haven't seen it by now, it's okay. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. It's been been a few years. It's been a few uh, years. But the, but the idea that he's remembering the entire movie on the plane back home, and that's why certain <laughs> scenes are are repeated and differently because mm, that's, that's the way true. memory works. Yeah. And I thought I've never seen anything quite like that. And I also loved that they used footage from, um, from poor Is cow, he, which he made yeah. in 67 to me. I, I, I hadn't seen that either. And then, it, and then they did it in targets, you know, to have Karloff playing essentially a version of himself, but then showing a real Boris Karloff movie, yeah. the criminal code. Super thought, meta for 68. Damn, that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How, I don't think that had ever been done before. I think I think that movie gets the credit for being the first to do that. Maybe. Yeah. Karloff is so good. He, you, you want the actor in that role to be great. Like, I, I think part of it is our, you know, how they say, like, when you get up and do stand-up comedy, you know, they want to be with you. It's not like they actively want you to bomb. In fact, yes. they're, they're kind of afraid that you're going to bomb. And when you don't, that's that's when you get the applause and it's sort of, they're willing to give it to you because you've yeah. saved them this awkward moment. Similarly, I think Karloff, I think now there's so much more appreciation for that type of role in a movie. But I think at the time, you know, I can't imagine it's so early that those guys were still walking around and, and having active careers. I think Karloff at the time I read, was like, he literally had half of one lung, and mm-hmm. could right. only stand on one leg mm-hmm. and could only work for like minutes at a time, which makes, there's a scene where he recites, um, what's the, it's, I don't know oh, if it's uh, a poem or Samara. appointment in Samara, you know, where he, he basically recites the entirety of it. Once upon a time, many, many years ago, a rich merchant in Baghdad sent his servant to the marketplace to buy provisions. And after a while, the servant came back, white-faced and trembling, and said, Master, when I was in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd, and I turned to look, and I saw that it was death that had jostled me. And she looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Oh, Master, please lend me your horse that I may ride away from this city and escape my fate. I will ride to Samara, and death will not find me there. So the merchant loaned him the horse, and the servant mounted it, and dug his spurs into its flank, and as fast as the horse could gallop, he rode towards Samara. Then the merchant went to the marketplace, and he saw death standing in the crowd, and he said to her, Why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning? And Death said, 
I made no threatening gesture. That was, that was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him here in Baghdad. For I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. That scene, what is a hundred second take? Where yes. he tells tells appointment in Samara perfectly. By the way, without you know, without any what he called idiot cards, no cue cards or anything like that. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, he, he's <laughs> Bogdanovich offered. He said, and Carlos says, "Oh, you you mean idiot cards?" <laughs> no, he says, "No, I've got the." He would say, "I've got the jokes," instead of lines. He never used the word lines. I've got the jokes. I've got the lyrics. And so he gives that performance, and Bogdanovich said in his commentary that he he had seen the the Grinch, you know, Karloff's narration mm. of the Grinch and gave and that gave him the idea to tell oh. tell that story. Interesting. And um and then afterwards the the crew applauded. Um I think oh and I have another bit of direction I remember Bogdanovich gave him was at the very end of the story, think of your own impending death. Mm. Which is kind of a grim note to give an actor. <laughs> Who's about to die. <laughs> <laughs> and you, but if you know that that's what he's thinking and you watch that scene, you can see him give a kind of internal wow. shudder. And it's a wonderful performance. Uh, his thousand cigarette a day voice alone, you know, that mahogany uh, mm-hmm. skin. He's just, it's brilliant. It's so it is good. brilliant. And his warmth comes through, even though his character is this bitter old actor, it wasn't, it, it wasn't who he was in real life. And I, I think he still can't, he can't quite conceal no. his incredible joie de vivre, you know, and he was a, he was a great man too. You know, he, he, every, he did Santa Claus, I think every year at children's hospital, he cared deeply for children. He did a lot of volunteer work and um, his well, daughter sp- speaks very lovingly of him. And I think you're so right that the character can't ever quite, let go. And even in all his complaints and all of his actually really kind of modern awareness and complaints in the screening room and being mm-hmm. fed up and, and, and also the, the kind of smarts with which the movie presents the bullshit that's being thrown at him by the producers and his deft ability to see through that, like that's all pretty heady stuff for 1968 Hollywood, you know, and for Bogdanovich, who presumably hasn't really been through any of that yet. I mean, so Maybe that's Sam Fuller, you know, who I who I guess gave kind of an uncredited uh, either rewrite or 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 maybe gave him some insight into that kind of stuff. I guess I know famously Sam Fuller supposedly came up with Karloff's big moment at the end of the film where he attacks uh, our shooter protagonist both mm-hmm. on screen and in real life. Yes. Uh, so maybe maybe some of that Hollywood bitterness came from Fuller because I don't know how how would Bogdanovich be embittered enough to write about that stuff in 1968? He's like 22, that's an, three years old, you know. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think you know, <laughs> he he, um, he knew all the old, all, you know, the the old the legends from the golden age, and uh, maybe some of that rubbed off on him. But I agree with you. He 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 was too young to be to be cynical about it. Um, he did get a lot from Sam Fuller who refused to take credit for, for any of that stuff. And he did give him that beautiful scene at the end. Uh, and I, I love that Karloff, when he encounters the, the, the shooter, mm-hmm. he slaps him, yes. he like slaps him. And it's so contemptuous of, of the man's cowardice. Yeah. It, and, and, and it, and immediately unmans the guy, he falls to the ground whimpering. Mm-hmm. He can, and it's this, 
such this this terrific moment of the of the old of the old Victorian horror getting a comeback and mm-hmm. and and showing that the modern horror has is is at its heart based completely in cowardice. Yes, very well said. I think that scene alone, that slap alone, mm-hmm. again, just thinking about what we're still dealing with as a country, the gun yes. culture, yeah. you know, which Bogdanovich mentioned in almost every every interview I could find that he gave about this movie in the you know subsequent forty or fifty years since he made it. He he always mentions the same thing, which is you know his sad realization that it it really hasn't changed much. And you're so right that 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 dismissive, contemptuous slap is a slap at that new evil you're talking about, and that it's not it's not based in anything. It's based in a selfishness, yeah. or or a you know an inability to process information, perhaps in that kind of stunted conversation that the character tries to have with his wife in their bedroom. But you know the movie really, I think, points that the reason he's stunted is that that middle-class suburban existence, which sort of puts a placid or placidil fueled smile and countenance on everything and doesn't really have any room for real thought and feeling. And that's, I think, why all that stuff on the radio that he's listening to is so brilliantly kind of comically rock and roll in quotes, but Mm -hmm. but none of it is real. And there's something about that that works so well. I bet that's probably a a Verna Fields thing too. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if she either yeah. wrote that music or had somebody, you know, came up with that because that's a real big part of how it comes across too. You mean kind of the, the bland yes. sort of blood yes. background rock? Yeah. Yes. It's so brilliant when you listen <laughs> it to it. Is. It's like it if is. they had used real songs, it would be less good, <laughs> you know? And I think it's very pointed that they have this kind of hyper, hyper kinetic mm-hmm. would be rock. That's just nothing. It's just a bland, nothing, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the white, uh, it's like the white Mustang, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's that, that's so that's so true. And 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 then the key difference between the 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 Karloff style horror is that the horror that 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 his movies were about were and you see this in the Criminal Code. They're about passion. The mm-hmm. horror is born out of human our heightened human states: fury, jealousy, mm-hmm. um, lust. Uh, they're 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 relatable. Mm. Whereas Bobby Thompson's character, his horror is is this alien antiseptic mm-hmm. approach to humanity that's that that's devoid of so so you you have the 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 old school horror of wanting to to interact with your victim. You look at mm. Dracula uh mm-hmm. seducing uh mm-hmm. his victim and this new version which is about which is about distance yeah. and about and about dehumanization. It's it's not recognizing them as people, and and the fact that Bogdanovich nailed that so perfectly, I, I don't think I don't think anyone else could have made the movie. I don't think anyone else could have played Karloff's part. It, it almost and 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 in a way, I don't think it could have been made at any other time because mm. it 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 had its finger on the pulse of that transition to that new chilling evil. Yeah, it certainly couldn't have been made in '68, as you said, after the assassinations. No, no studio would have, no one would have even put one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars towards no. it then. No. And I think that um, the the feeling that you get with the Bobby Thompson, you know, is he can it, he could have just as easily maybe gone to a ball game, you know, but he chooses to like 
shoot 15 people from an oil tanker, yeah, an oil, he oil you know, picnic with he brings a picnic with him. And, and those shots um, are so jarring today of when he's shooting people in their cars, you know, to accomplish that on, on a film set like this was, was really impressive. So I, you know, in the note that he wrote to your parents, <clears throat> he mentioned, I was kind of sad because he mentioned, I don't know when he wrote that, but he said, yes, it looks like Criterion is going to do a release of targets, yeah. but, but I didn't see that that has ever happened yet. No, I didn't see it either. And Man, it's uh, such oh, a so it deserves it. such a lost. I hope I hope they do it because when was it, that it, note it, written? That was a year ago, almost. Oh, okay, so maybe it's still in the progress. I, I hope so. I hope so. I'm because once it's on Criterion, then it's like ah, it's preserved forever. You know, it'll be it'll yeah. be around, and it, it deserves it a hundred percent. Okay, Joseph. Well, listen, we could talk forever, but yeah. um, we've already talked for an hour and 15 <laughs> minutes and um, we will talk again, I'm sure. So uh, I want to keep in, in touch with you as your, uh, as your book comes out on April 5th. Again, everyone go to Amazon pre-order. You're going to, you're not going to be disappointed if you're a fan of, I hate to use the term literate crime fiction because I think that sounds so highfalutin in a way, but I do think that if you read widely in crime fiction and you have a discerning taste, meaning if you like kind of quality fiction and you're attracted to crime novels, I think you're really going to enjoy this series of books because the protagonist is wholly original. The setting is beautifully rendered and takes place in Los Angeles again that I think connects to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is also Tarantino's most personal film. Uh, you can tell that it's written by someone who grew up there. That's a very different type of person, isn't it, than, a, than what everyone else in L.A. is, which is a transplant? <laughs> you know, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way. Uh, I, I guess. Uh, yeah. It is. Oh. I mean, I know a few, like, it, it, they're actually pretty few and far between. Um, yeah. Most people that you meet, certainly if you're, you know, going to L.A. for the industry, most mm -hmm. people that you meet are not from there. You no, know, I the, guess that's dying. And, and when right. when and I know a few friends who grew up there. I don't know. Were your parents native Angelinos too, or did they move there? For they work? were. Well, my mom, yeah. They, oh they wow, okay. Were. So you're even. So you're you're a you're second generation. Yeah, yeah that's um, right. So I there's a very different approach and perspective that I find people like yourself have who who grew up there and whose parents grew up there. That's a very different thing. Like they both have that awareness of what you're talking about, about the looming presence of Hollywood in quotes mm -hmm. and the actual existence that, that people live in the actual places yeah. they go to eat and uh, drink at or shop at. It's very different. And I think that's yeah. that, that realism is what sets your set of books apart. So Thank you. And that. I, and, and before we wrap up, I just want to say how much I appreciate your scholarship, your commentary, your, what you're doing for, for cinema, I think is so valuable. And um, I want to just express once again, my gratitude for getting to, to share my love of movies with you today. Oh, I appreciate that, Joseph. And uh, we will talk again soon. Okay. I hope so. Take All care. Right. I enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me today. Bye-bye. Thank Bye-bye.